for that. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, uh, you know, these words here recorded as in part, yes, history, because they just actually happened like this. But Lord, also recorded for our good and they continue to speak to us and the lord we were not there for these events lord they still have this way of speaking to us and speaking into our, our life and who we are and lord we thank you that you don't leave us uh, sort of alone just sort of grasping at straws not really knowing uh, who you are or or what you ask of us but lord you you've spoken to us uh, clearly here in your word lord pray as we come to look at this um this morning that you might speak to us i pray that uh you might through these words actually minister to our, our very souls i pray and holy spirit i ask that you might uh, work uh, through me i pray uh, this morning for your glory we ask it lord and, and also for our our good amen well, hopefully, if I can get this up for you here, I've uh, I've been spared a bit of work uh, this week because uh, my background here I've I've borrowed from from Aidan, who's done up this wonderful scene here of uh, the feeding of the five thousand. Let me see if I can get this full screen. It'd be a bit better, wouldn't it? Let me see if I can do that there. There we go. That's better. There we go. That's awesome. You can see some Ninja Turtles. Star Wars characters, Batman, uh, all sorts of different people. Fantastic. I hope Aiden, you don't charge me too much in the royalties for using it, though. We'll, uh, we'll see if I get stung with a big bill for breaching copyright. I feel that was wonderful. Let me see if I can skip this ahead. There we go. I wondered just as we uh, begin here, whether I could ask you here, when, when was the last time you were asked? And this might be a little while ago, actually, just because of the way the world has been the last little while but whether you're in a situation where you're asked well you know who are you or you know tell us a little bit about yourself you know where you're in a sort of group setting or a class or something you know and you have to do that thing of suddenly thinking oh you know how are you gonna describe yourself actually I, I had to do that um this week I was meeting with a group of sort of other ministers and uh, I always panic because I always think you know what do you say <laughs> you know what what sort of thing are you looking for I don't want to give you too much information you know you're not you know, so bothered about. What do you say? How do you define yourself? How do you identify yourself before others? Um, my granddad, uh, once on holiday, um, there's an amazing story. He's there on one of these sort of saga holidays. Um, and, and actually, you know, in the sort of twilight years of, of, of his life, you know, a, a lot of his life was sort of enjoying his years of work by sort of being on holiday. Uh, and he's there and he's one of those, he was one of those annoying people that's like kind of good at everything. Um, and, and, and very, he was very intelligent as well. So uh, over the course of time, people, you know, people are trying to work out and get to know people. He's spending lots of time with people. And the funny thing is, you can define yourself by what you say, but also just as much through what you um, don't say. Um, because one of the things he did was he just revealed nothing much about himself. Very personable, very sociable, but didn't say. All he would say, in fact, was, I, I can't tell you what I do. And so over the course of the days, you know, the intrigue grows. You know, who, who is this guy? They, they, they realise that he's he can talk on a wide range of things very easily. He's uh, sort of very good at cards. He They went as an activity out onto a shooting range, and he was very, very good at that. And they're thinking, 
oh my goodness, is is this like is he a spy? <laughs> and of course, that was exactly what he wanted. He he was actually a retired maths teacher, uh, and uh, you know, dare I say that because we do have a couple of maths teachers here, that perhaps he just got tired of the stereotype of maybe being a boring maths teacher and thought, do you know, I'm going to see if I can convince people I'm a spy. <laughs> But I wonder how it is that you define yourself when you're in those moments. Tell us a bit about yourself. Who are you? Well, here we get one, at least, of Jesus's answers to this kind of question. Who are you? What are you about? What do you do? Here we've got the, uh, uh, the fourth discourse, the fourth bit of teaching from Jesus that John has included here. And one of the things we said back along is that the way John's gospel works, it's, or at least one of the ways it works, is that you see Jesus being revealed through some signs that he performs. The fourth one of those was feeding the 5,000. The fifth one was the very short, just few verses there of him walking on the water. And then also the discourses, the teaching. And this is the fourth bit of teaching that Jesus has given but it's also the first of a series of seven I am statements that are really Jesus's answer to who he is and what's the point of it before we sort of get into the rest of the verses here what's the big point of all of these verses here what's the big point of Jesus's answer to to who he is through this bit of imagery on the bread of life well it's this and if you remember nothing else this is probably the bit to, to cling on to that Jesus isn't just the giver of bread he is the bread of God come down from heaven to put it another way he's not just the giver of gifts but he is the gift of God he is God himself come down and he is the gift of the gospel that's really what we'll see through these verses let me turn your attention here to verses 22 to 24. Will, I should say, much like John does, although uh, the gospel writers all record the walking on the water, John actually relatively sort of skips over it. Not because it's unimportant, but because John, I suppose, really wants to get to this bit of teaching here that explains just what's happened with the miraculous feeding of, of the 5,000. And so actually, I, I'm not going to focus really much at all on the walking on water just this morning um, and to just focus on, on the bit of teaching there. But turn with me there to verses 22 to 24. And the heading I've put just for these few verses here is when Jesus was more popular than the Beatles. And if I pull up uh, these slides here for you, I'll show you a quote from which this idea comes from. This is uh, John Lennon. Let's see. Let's get him up there. There he is. He says this. I need to move the Zoom box so I can read it. There we go. Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. This was a comment that stoked up great controversy at the time, at least in America it did. Actually, when it was first published in 1966 in the Evening Standard in London, it caused no controversy really in the UK by comparison, but in America it very much did. And the odd thing is, and the thing about the statement that really I'm interested in, is that idea that we're more popular than Jesus now. And that was incredibly unpopular thing to say. And yet, actually, arguably, I think John Lennon might have been right. 
at that point in time, I think he might have been correct to say that actually there were more people more interested in the Beatles than Jesus. But the only reason that John Lennon could possibly ever say that and it make any sort of sense was that there was a time when once Jesus was even more popular than the Beatles were. And they experienced an almost unparalleled sort of level of popularity and, and fame. When you see the pictures and you hear the stories of that, it, it really was a Beatles mania. And yet there's a time in which Jesus was popular on a level even beyond that in his own life. And that's some of what we've seen already in the Gospels to this point. He had a popularity and fame that it's really hard for us actually to to understand and, and identify with. It's it's so um, high that he really can't escape it. And it's so great that the people even want to make him king. It, it's, uh, it's so passionate and enthusiastic, at least at this point, that they would even want to forcibly uh, make him king. We read here, verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained. So... <laughs> Probably not all of them. I, I doubt it was all of them, but at least some of them even have stayed there overnight just on the off chance that Jesus might sort of reappear there in the morning. Of course, Jesus actually has, has made his way uh, across the water to the to the other side and isn't there with them. But they're there hoping that they may just catch another glimpse of Jesus, another moment, another experience with him. He can't escape. It's crazy. It says the crowd here, verse 22, saw only one boat there. They recognised that Jesus hadn't entered the boat. And thirdly, they recognised that the disciples had gone alone. You see their sort of little investigation there. They recognised there's only one boat there. Jesus has gone across. The disciples are still here. He must have gone without them, except he's not used that boat. I don't think they work out what's happened, that Jesus has walked across the water. I don't think they would have imagined, really, that that would be possible would they? But they do realise that something maybe is up. Something strange has happened here. There's, uh, you know, uh, a lot of discussion amongst commentators how to interpret this. You know, is the point here that there was only one boat or there was only one boat available uh, to the rest of the crowd and things here? And I don't think that that matters. I think what John has in mind here is what the crowd do notice. There are some things that the crowd haven't noticed yet, and I don't think they've joined the dots that Jesus has walked on the water to get across. But there's some things that they have noticed. One, Jesus is left on his own. He's left without the disciples. And I wonder if they might have been asking, well, has there been a falling out? Do, do you know, has somebody said something that they're not getting along just now? And secondly, they can't account for how he travelled. I don't think that they know how he's travelled, but they can't account for how he's travelled. Has someone else picked him up? Has he got a sort of mystery sort of angel investor who's backing him, who's come and sort of airlifted him out of there? It's the sort of intrigue and investigation and rumour and suggestion that kind of happens on a political campaign trail. What are, what's the real story? What's really going on behind the scenes here? 
And then we're told here, verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they'd eaten bread. Bethsaida, where the miracle had happened of, of the feeding there, um, was the halfway point and the stopping off point between Tiberias, where these boats had come from, and Capernaum, where they're going to go to now. And so it was a natural thing, almost like a, a, a bus route or, or a taxi sort of stop off point. You know, you'd have a load of other boats come there, so you'd have the opportunity then to get across uh, again. And the crowd saw that Jesus wasn't there, nor the disciples. So they get into the boats and went to Capernaum. The crowd, the popularity, the fame just keeps following Jesus. It's uh, unprecedented for him and it's unrelenting. There's no break. There's no rest. There's no peace. Secondly, we see some inferior motives Verse 25 here says, when they found him on the other side, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? When the crowd find him again, I don't know whether you noticed that, that there, but they ask completely the wrong question. When did you get here? Not how did you get here? <laughs> That's the thing already that they've noticed is really the amazing thing. But they just ask, well, when did you get here? Sometimes maybe it's that blind panic of not quite knowing what to say. And so they just blurt something out. When did you get over here? We see with this crowd, as we've seen before, they're always sort of a day late, a dollar short. They're always slow to catch on or not catching on at all. And even now they're calling him just rabbi. We've seen the amazing a miracle of, of um, multiplying there's just those five loaves to feed many thousands of people 5,000 men but of course as Peter was saying you know but by the time that you count as well women and children likely far larger uh, crowd than that an amazing miracle and yet still calling him only teacher they've still not really got who Jesus is despite all that they've seen and then look now at how Jesus cuts through all of this. Verse 26 here. You're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He cuts right through their fairly inane and pointless question of when did you get here to the real heart of the matter. Why it is that they're following him. You're not seeking the signs, but you had your fill of the loaves there's inferior motives here you're not following because of the signs even though that wouldn't be the best thing right actually be best to be following me because you believed <laughs> uh, i was the one sent from the father as he's said numerous times already and will go on to say again as well but you're not even following me just because of the signs that wouldn't be the best thing but you're not following me because of that even even some level of recognizing that i'm that Jesus is something special, that he's, he's something we've not seen before. Now, you're following me because you were fed. You're following me because you're wondering what else you might get out of me. One commentator, Leon Morris, has summarised this bit like this. He says, he recognises the real motive of these fellow travellers and speaks sharply. Had they come, even on the basis of the signs they'd seen, it would have betokened some faith, however small. Faith that rests on the miracles is not the highest kind of faith, but it is better than no faith at all. But these people were crass materialists. 
They'd not reflected on the spiritual significance of the sign they'd seen. Instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they had seen in the sign only bread. They came because their hunger had been satisfied. They were moved not by full hearts, but by full bellies. Jesus was useful to a point, so long as he would continue to give those things. And yet, look at how Jesus here doesn't attach himself to these people. He doesn't attach himself to those who would want to make him king, to use him for their own ends, for their own desires, their own purpose and plan. And nor does he attach himself to those who are wanting to take all that he has to give, again, to use him. And now look at how he corrects them here. Verse 27, don't labour for the food that perishes, but for that that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. There's two problems here for them. There's a wrong focus. They're focusing on the material, not the spiritual. Leon Morris said that in his quote there, didn't he? In the sign, they only see the bread. They don't see that the bread points to something beyond the bread. They, They just see the bread. They're focusing on the material, not the spiritual. They're focusing on the here and now, not the eternal. There's a wrong focus. But secondly, they're too easily pleased. They're settling for too little. There's inferior motives. They're looking for bread, not Jesus. And they're looking at inferior objects. Bread that perishes, not bread that endures. We started at the beginning. I was um, asking you there about whether there was a particular sort of meal or, or restaurant that you've gone to that you particularly sort of um, enjoyed and um, that holds a good sort of memory for you. And as I was thinking about this, thinking about this crowd here, there's so, you know, they've got the wrong focus, just the bread, not Jesus, the temporal, not the eternal. And they've got this thing where they're too easily pleased you know, satisfied just with the bread there in front of them rather than something better that Jesus would give to them. It made me think of, uh, my brother's a chef, so he kind of keeps me in the know sometimes of um, stuff going on. This here is, um, let me see if I can get to it here. This is the Waterside Inn. I don't know if you've ever seen it or heard of it. You may perhaps have heard of some of the chefs. It's run by the, the famous Rue family, uh, French-English family, all of them are really sort of amazing uh, chefs and uh, a number of amazing restaurants. In the UK, there are five restaurants that are rated as three Michelin star. Three Michelin star is, is the pinnacle. You can't get any better. And to do that, chefs and restaurants and their owners will, will literally have to work themselves to the bone to get there. It's the absolute pinnacle of achievement. And the Waterside Inn, is sort of the top rated of those five. And the Waterside Inn, in fact, has had three Michelin star for over 30 years. It's the only restaurant outside of Paris that's ever achieved that. Incredible. Imagine someone pays for you to go and to eat at the Waterside Inn. Okay, COVID has finished whenever it does and things have begun to settle and someone pays you to do it. It's all covered. You don't have to worry about anything. It's all sorted. You just turn up. It's there for you. 
what an amazing experience that would be. And here's just a little selection of some of the food. And the amazing thing I thought as I saw some of these pictures is I have no idea what any of this is, but I know it looks amazing. <laughs> I'm looking at it thinking, do you know what? That sort of courgette flour has never looked so good. <laughs> I could just devour it. It's the kind of food that's once in a lifetime. You don't even need to know what it is. You just know it's, it's going to be amazing. And if someone else has paid it for you, don't have to worry about the cost. Just enjoy the moment, enjoy the memories, enjoy the experience. What an amazing thing that would be. But can you imagine, and this is in essence what the crowd are doing. You're here, you've, you've got yourself kind of dressed up. You're there waiting, you're, you're there in the lovely sort of cocktail lounge, just, just having a, uh, a drink before your meal. You've just got to wait a little bit before your table's ready. Uh, you know, it's a busy place. There's lots of people who want to be there. Uh, and you know that in just maybe 20 minutes or so, you, you'll be able to sit down and, and start to enjoy some of this amazing experience. And in the impatience of that 20 minutes, you decide, do you know what? This, this is too long a wait. I'm, I'm going to get in the car. Um, uh, we're just going to pick something up from the services on the way home because, you know, I'm not going to wait 20 minutes for this. Why should I be sat here waiting? How incredibly short-sighted and stupid would that be? Who would do that? Surely, maybe, maybe there are people who would, but, you know, surely you just wouldn't. You just think, no, do you know, it's worth the wait. This, this is something that, you know, it's probably I'm never going to do again. This will probably be just a once and, and done, once in a lifetime experience. This is going to be more than just a meal. It's everything. Uh, or the whole experience, the atmosphere, the something special. You would wait, wouldn't you? You wouldn't settle for just, you know, an all day breakfast late at night on a road chef at a service station, you know, where the beans are baked onto the side of the pan and burnt, where the eggs taste like rubber because they've been there for hours on the hot plate, where the sausages, you can taste the cardboard in them. Why on earth? You wouldn't. Surely you'd, you'd wait for the three Michelin star meal. And yet what the crowd are doing and what we're so prone to do is to settle for less and to miss the amazing opportunity right in front of our face. They have inferior motives. They settle for too little. They settle for inferior objects, bread that perishes, for inferior motives. They're, they're after just the next meal and not the whole new life, you know, that Jesus will offer. Thirdly, there's a question here that the crowd asks to Jesus. What do you want? in essence, is what they're asking here. Verse 28 to 34, they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And you might think as you stop and think about what it is they're asking there, and bear in mind what Jesus has said already to, to this point and what they've experienced. Have they not listened at all? What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? Have they not paid attention? Have they not been listening? I don't know whether it's, you know, um, you've ever been caught out not listening. Um, and dare I suggest that perhaps there's, there's one gender that, that tends to 
be worse at that, isn't it? Is <laughs> the honest truth. Um, I found myself at times as well completely unaware of where I'm at in a conversation <laughs> and <laughs> going along with all manner of things because I just I haven't heard. <laughs> I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> I remember having a conversation with a guy once growing up and I and I, I couldn't hear what he was saying. And um, do you know, there's only so many times as well that you can maybe ask someone to repeat something and you feel a bit awkward. Uh, <laughs> and, and I ended up getting into this long conversation, but well, it was one direction. It was more him talking because I, I didn't know what was going on, so I couldn't really offer much back. <laughs> it just said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was talking about some death metal bands and somehow I'd sort of agreed to, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Until I realised what he was doing, I was like, oh, yeah, no, I'm sorry, I'm not into that. <laughs> I hadn't heard what you said. <laughs> I felt a bit bad to just say, so I just sort of went along with it a bit, and then and then I realised, oh, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm not really interested in that. Sorry, I'm not really a fan. They're caught out not listening here. He's just said it's a gift from him, and they ask, what must we do to get it? He says, this is the work of God here, verse twenty nine, that you believe in him whom he sent, simply to believe. Do you know, it's that thing where we so often can just want to do something for God as if he needs it. Yeah, it's, it's that thing, perhaps you've experienced, perhaps you've done it, maybe a bit of both, where sometimes there's that, you know, there's some people who give you a gift that really they want. As a family growing up, we used to do a sort of secret Santa um, kind of a thing with, with small presents you know, between each other. And, you know, it was uh, amazing sort of run of luck, really, that my sort of brother and sister, five and seven years younger than me. So when I was a teenager, they're maybe like seven and sort of eight or nine, somehow managed to have the foresight to sort of buy me 70s rock albums that my dad had just so happened to be talking about how good they were like a week before. Uh, uncanny. Uh, I, I seem to receive a string of gifts that uh, that really I, th I think he wanted more than me. But of course, I returned the favour sort of later on down the years. Where I, I got him some albums that I, I kind of uh, had my eyes on myself. Do you know, there can sometimes be this thing before God that even we just want to bring what we want to bring. Whereas what Jesus is saying is actually what, what God is asking for is just for you to believe. He's not asking for you to do anything at this point. He's asking for you to believe. That's all he's asking for. It's all he's calling for. The only action he's calling for isn't really an action, but is to believe in God's action, in his gift of Jesus. And so the people now go on and, and, and ask a question that's, that's fairly sensible. Well, if, OK, if you're saying that we, we have to believe in the one who sent, well, then what sign do you do? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. I, I say it sort of makes sense because it's a logical question. If you're asking us to believe in you, well, you know, kind of maybe you need to uh, show us why we should believe in you. And yet, look at what they're asking. What work do you perform? Oh, well, I mean, I don't know. He's just walked on water and fed thousands upon thousands of people with five loaves. I mean, <laughs> what, what more are we looking for? Here at this point, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Mm. And you've just ate the bread <laughs> in the countryside yourselves. And yet still 
asking for him to prove his legitimacy. What are you going to give to us now that's going to prove who you really are, that you're the real deal? It's stunning, the sort of arrogance, really, isn't it? What will you, as son of God, do to convince us? How are you going to earn our trust? As if we hold the cards. And yet, actually, so often, can't that be us? Hasn't that been us, perhaps, in the past? But that's how we've seen God until we've really come to know who Jesus is, that we've almost felt as if, well, he's got to prove himself to me. What a crazy thing. And especially when you think of what he's just done. Tells me in verse 32, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. I guess what they're sort of asking and perhaps why Jesus goes to Moses here is, you know, prove to us that you're something better than Moses because Moses in the past gave us this bread. So, you know, how do we know that you're better than him? Okay, you've done something similar, but how do we know that you're better? And yet Jesus' response here is good. Well, (laughs) actually, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread. (laughs) It it was God. (laughs) Verse 33 here. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Three things we see there. The bread of God is one, a person. The bread of God is he who comes down. It's a person, not a thing. Secondly, it's one who comes down. God comes to us. Amazing thing. Actually, God comes down to meet and to rescue, to save humans. And thirdly, what does he come to do? He comes down from heaven and gives life. Oddly, Jesus hasn't really totally answered the question exactly here. What he's done is restated his identity. He's told him again who he is. They said to him here, verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. And you might think, well, that's, that's, that's an encouraging response. That's quite positive, isn't it? Is it? Has anything changed? Is anything new here? Something sounds good. I will take it. Is that harsh? No, I don't think it is. They're still not connecting the dots that he's talking about himself. And actually, we know from Matthew chapter 16 that the disciples don't get it at this point either. And Jesus knew (laughs) that they didn't. Pretty graciously, doesn't completely sort of embarrass them in front of everyone at this point. What do you want? Well, Jesus says here, to believe. Lastly, who do you think that you are? I said at the beginning there to try to think of a time where you've been asked perhaps to, to say a little about who you are, to kind of define yourself to people. It's really hard, isn't it? It's, it's hard just in a sort of few seconds to try to um, just, you know, describe all that uh, kind of briefly. But here is Jesus's attempt, at least one of them in uh, the first of his I am statements. Um, In the original Greek in which this is uh, written, there's two words for I am. There's ego, or from which, you know, we get the English ego, person, and eime. And you you could use either or. And normally when you would use uh, those words, uh, much the same uh, in English, I guess, uh, most of the time, normally the subject, that is the focus of what you then say, is what I am. So if you say I am, the focus then is what comes after I am. Normally, that's normally the thing, isn't it? Interestingly, 
Jesus says each time here, which you'll only see in the original language, this is why I sort of bring this up in the English, it's not so clear. He says, ego, Amy, I am, I am. The only other time that that's said is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, at the point in Exodus where God reveals himself in the burning bush. I am, I am. Jesus says here in the original language, bread of life, I am, I am. So that rather than like we said, normally the focus would be I am and then what it is. I am a parent. I am a man. The focus would be a bit at the end. Jesus flips it around. The focus, the subject is I, himself, his person. So that what he's saying here is, I am, I am the bread of life. So that really what Jesus is saying each time in his I am statements is, I am that God. And here's one of the ways you can understand it. I'm the bread of life. And there'll be others as well that will come after this. It's a way of saying, I, I am that same God that revealed himself in that way back then. What an amazing statement then this is from Jesus. Whoever comes to me says, shall not hunger and shall never thirst. We'll find satisfaction for our soul's longings, the very things that the Rolling Stones sang in 1964. They couldn't find. I can't find no satisfaction. Had money, had fame, had popularity, had success, had everything I guess you might want, but I can't find no satisfaction. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, shall never thirst. You'll find satisfaction for your deepest longings. The problem here for them, though, is look at verse 36 there with me. You've seen me and yet don't believe. The problem is stubbornness. The problem is resistance, rebellion, not ignorance. The problem is, to maybe to put it simpler, not I, it, it's not I didn't know, it's I didn't want to. They didn't know the information. They just didn't want to agree. They didn't want to follow him. They didn't want to listen. But here's the hope, here's the encouragement, because one of the questions being asked is there's a couple of them. Who is Jesus? And of course, he's answering that here. But also, how do people come to follow him then? Because kind of so far, we just found a lot of people who are, yeah, not quite getting it, even the disciples who are closest to. So how do I come to get it and come to follow him and come to be part of what he's doing and to share in everything that he's bringing? All that the father gives to me, verse 37, will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. How do we come to know Jesus? How do we come to follow him, to receive and all the blessings, all his gifts, all he's doing? The father draws us. And there's a security there. All that the father gives, come to me. Everyone who the father reaches out to comes to Jesus. They don't lose any between them, the father and the son. But secondly, And maybe it's similar. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's no vetoing. Do you know, there's there's nobody who'll be blackballed. There's nobody who's so bad that they say, oh, no, well, not him or not her. Nobody's excluded. Nobody is not good enough to be welcomed in. 
he's come, he tells us here, verse 38, not to do my own will, but him who sent me. All that Jesus says and does is what his father wills. And so, okay, he's coming and doing his father's will. That is, you know, he's consistent with his father, does the same things. But what does his work consist of? Verse 39 here, that he'll lose nothing of all he's given, but raise it up on the last day. On the negative aspect, you might say, that he won't lose any of the, the father's given any that the father draws will come and he won't lose them but on the positive look at what he also does here he'll raise us up on the last day that he'll keep us that he'll save us for eternity everyone who looks on the son and believes should have eternal life and i will raise him up verse 40 there he's really just saying what he said in verse 29 again but more specifically believe in me and you'll be saved and you'll be raised up and so the Jews here grumble because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They reject the idea that he's come down from heaven because they don't believe that he is from heaven. They don't believe that he is God. They say instead, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? Actually, the Greek here is uh, really funny because it, John goes Scottish because what he actually says here is, um, oh, not this is Jesus, the son of Joseph. Ah, this is Jesus, son of Joseph. It's not, is this not? It's not an inquiry. Isn't this Joseph? No, it's, no, this is Joseph. No, this isn't the one who's come down. This is the one who we know, who lived down the road, who worked with his dad. It's not an inquiry. It's not inquisitive. It's dismissive. It's a statement about Jesus's identity. So rejection of all that he said to this point, and instead a statement of no, he's the son of the carpenter, the one who lives down the road who we've always known. He's nothing more than that. So finish by asking, who do you say Jesus is? Will you accept him? Not as giver of gifts, but the gift. And who do you say that you are? Will you come to Jesus weary, perhaps broken, perhaps hungry, and thirsty in some way? Will you look to him to bring you life, to satisfy your very real and every need and longing? Will you, rather than seeking to do something for him, believe in what he has done for you? and depend upon all that he continues to do for you and find life and find satisfaction in him. Who do you say he is and who do you say that you are? Maybe the two most important questions you'll ever think about in all of life every day. That he is the bread of life, come to give life to you. I'm going to pray and then um, Rachel's going to lead us in uh, a closing uh, song together. Father God, I thank you for your grace and your love, your compassion to us. Father, we were thinking just at the beginning of that story in the Old Testament of you giving miraculously bread to the people there and your graciousness uh, and compassion upon them who, who have nothing otherwise and depended completely upon you. Uh, an amazing grace on your part to feed them miraculously. And yet, 
how easy it is to to grow dissatisfied, I guess, and to think that there might be something better beyond you and to think that we might be missing out somehow uh, on some good thing that you're holding back from us. And yet, lose sight of all that you've done. Father, thank you that in response to our sin, our rebellion, that your response has not been to do away with us, but has been to send your son, the bread from heaven, to come and to give his life for us in our place, that we might be forgiven of sin, but that we might also find newness of life in you. That we might find what it is to truly live, finally. That we might know what it is to truly be human, to truly be your people, to live life in its fullness, depending on you, trusting in you and finding ourselves never hungry, never thirsty. Father, I thank you that all that you draw to yourself and to your son come to you. And thank you that, Jesus, you don't lose any of those who the Father draws to you. And so, Lord, I pray for those who maybe don't know you yet, that, Father, you would draw them to yourself. And you might save them. And Lord, for us who know you already, that you might help keep us. And Lord, we thank you that there's that promise there that you don't lose any and that nobody is cast out. Anyone who comes to you, you never push away. And that you do indeed raise us up on the final day. Lord, we thank you that we can have our hope firmly rested and rooted in you and find hope and, and purpose for the difficult times in which we live just in the minute. Father, we thank you for all that you've done. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that you might encourage you know, everybody who is um, here this morning, whatever they may be feeling, whatever they may be going through just at the minute, however life might look for them at the minute, different challenges they might be facing in, in, in different ways, Lord, just that you might really impress your grace and uh, your provision upon their hearts. So they know that they can trust you, that you will keep them, that you will hold on to them, that you will not let go and that you will not push them away no matter what. And Lord, we thank you that we can depend on you for that. Lord, help us as we come to sing this final song, Lord, just to really praise you for all that you've done for us. Amen.